Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a no film school podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I am Emily Booter. And I'm John Fusco. It's August 24th, 2017, and on this week's show, a big shakeup in the LA independent film community. How much cash exactly do top grossing indie directors make? Sad industry goodbyes, including a final toll for Final Cut 7. And as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Hello and welcome to this week's show from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. We're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. So, it was Eclipse Week. Big thing that everyone here was talking about. Did you see it, John? Yeah. Tell us about it. It, The moon moved in front of the sun. Mm. Did it really? Oh, cool. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I saw about 450 different pictures on social media feeds of the same exact image, and that was cool. Wow, you spend too much time on social media. No, no, no. It's just, it was rampant all over the place. I actually kind of loved that about it, like that it it was a moment of national unity. Emily and I went on the top of our super wacky office building, and of course, like, this building is full of nerds, so people had made all these different pinhole cameras out of, like, boxes and tubes, and we had the glasses, and I gotta say, it was, like, really cool, cooler than I expected. Way cooler than I expected. However, the pinhole viewer was less cool than I expected, (laughs) because I was like, oh, cool, it's a little sliver of a shadow, compared to actually looking up at the sun and seeing the freaking the freaking halo around the moon (laughs) yeah yeah it was it was wild and um also it's like so rare in new york to see new yorkers just out on the street in the middle of the day like on mass and that was kind of fun too anyway it even affected our industry with netflix experiencing a 10 percent drop in viewership during the event and i gotta hand it to their social media team who tweeted Hey, just wondering why 10% of you chose to watch a giant rock cover a giant ball of gas when I have always been there for you. (laughs) Good job, Netflix. Anyway, if you missed it, we have a post on the site about how you can make your own eclipse with After Effects. So there, we'll link to it in this week's podcast post. Meanwhile, on to non-lunar headlines. This one's definitely non-lunar. In fact, although it's loony, it's pretty loony in a bad way. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a pretty serious piece of news we have here this week. A movie theater and community organization near and dear to the Los Angeles independent film scene is embroiled in a scandal that broke yesterday and led to the resignations of its top staff late last night. Cinefamily founder and executive director Hadrian Belove stepped down after an encrypted email was sent to hundreds of members of the L.A. film community, accusing him of multiple counts of sexual harassment and misconduct. Here's a little background on CineFamily. CineFamily is a prominent fixture in the L.A. film scene and one of the most popular indie theaters in the area. It was co-founded in 2007 by B-Love as a nonprofit dedicated to, quote, finding and presenting interesting and unusual programs of exceptional, distinctive, weird, and wonderful films, according to the website. It programs repertory screenings, new indie film releases, and special events with directors such as David Lynch. High-profile directors also sit on its advisory board, including Brie Larson, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and Jay and Mark Duplass. The anonymous sender attached public court documents from a 2014 lawsuit filed against Beloved and Cinefamily in the Los Angeles County Court, 
which alleged that, among other things, Belove tried to, quote, pimp a young female employee out to a wealthy potential donor who wanted her to visit him in his hotel room. A month later, Belove physically attacked her when she would not give him the attention that he demanded. The woman who filed the suit allegedly complained to Cinefamily, which responded by telling her that it was her fault, forcing her to confront her harasser, and refusing to take any actions against Belove for his inappropriate behavior. The case was settled out of court. Blech. Yeah. In addition to Belove, the Cinefamily board accepted the resignation of board vice president Shady L. Schnei. Seriously, Shady? Yeah, that's appropriate. <laughs> who the email accused of, quote, raping multiple women all verbally threatened and scared into silence after the assault, end quote. The mass email implicated Belove and Cinefamily in tolerating and perpetuating an unsafe and exploitative environment for young female employees and volunteers, some of whom have since spoken out to corroborate the claims. Last night, one female ex-employee came forth on Twitter saying, quote, I used to work at Cinefamily and I saw a lot of things. The email speaks for itself, and it barely says anything compared to what we lived, unquote. Another female employee wrote the following on her Facebook page. Quote, Cinefamily is a great institution with a lot of amazing employees, but it has evil men in charge. In my three years there, I was taken advantage of a million different ways. I was made to feel that if I spoke out in my experiences, I would never be able to get another job. Hadrian Belove and Shady Alshnai are men that abuse not only their power, but women as well. End quote. Many more people came out on Twitter to paint a picture of Cinefamily as a workplace with no boundaries and a habit of exploiting its young women, saying that they were not at all surprised to hear of these allegations. For his part, Belove wrote an informal public statement on his Facebook page, which tells a different story. I'll read an excerpt from it. Quote, I believe and have evidence that this is part of an ongoing and aggressive campaign from a disgruntled ex-employee who has consistently revealed himself to have a malevolent agenda. Belove further accused the email sender of maligning him and Cinefamily with, quote, malicious slander, with just enough wisps of truth and just enough rumors to make it feel true. The email has generated some backlash from the indie film community, with many patrons coming to Cinefamily and Belove's defense. Others, however, have renounced their memberships at the theater entirely. Now, clearly this piece of news transcends indie film as it raises some really serious issues of sexual harassment and abuse. It's a classic case of he said, she said, and it brings to light our culture's problem of epistemology, which we can't seem to solve either within the legal system or without. But with regard to indie film, it does beg a question. What responsibility, if any, do we have as patrons of cinema to the legal and ethical controversies behind the movies we love? I think of Woody Allen and Roman Polanski. I don't know about you guys. Ugh, the whole story creeps me out. And sorry, but even the phrase wisps of truth is just icky. It is. Ugh. Moving on to another somewhat controversial story, but much less disgusting. A quick update from one of our headlines from last week, and officially my most read story of all time on No Film School, about how the MoviePass theatrical subscription service was dropping its monthly fee to only 10 bucks. While it looks like more of you came down on the this is cool side of the debate than on the this is going to destroy movie going side, since in the two days after the announcement, MoviePass subscribership surged to over 150,000 people which is up from a reported subscriber base of only 20,000 people back in December, when the cheapest package cost $14.95 a month and the most expensive was 50 bucks. There was also an immediate impact on numbers of people using the service to go to the movies. 
According to the data firm that bought MediaPass and set off this whole chain of events, one theater reported that over six days following the price drop, MoviePass attendance grew from 206 people to over 4,000. We also reported last week that one of the entities that was less enamored by the MoviePass deal was America's largest theater chain, AMC, which vowed to block the program from use in its theaters. The update here is that AMC has since discovered that the only way to really block MoviePass from use would be to ban acceptance of MasterCards entirely, since that's the credit card company that provides MoviePass's membership cards. Of course, not taking MasterCards would ultimately hurt AMC's overall business. This still didn't stop AMC from trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater in a move that can only be called caddy. The theater chain has now blocked advanced e-tickets from being purchased at its Denver and Boston locations, which doesn't mean that MoviePass buyers can't buy tickets, but it does mean that doing so will be slightly less convenient because they'll have to actually go to the theater to buy the tickets. Yeah, when I used to use MoviePass, you would have to go within like five feet of the theater and turn on your app, and then it would recognize that you were there and give you the option to like sign in at the movie theater. I don't know if it still works that way. No, now you can just, I mean, in theory, you can just order tickets online like anything else, but you use your MoviePass card. And so AMC is blocking e-tickets, but the problem is, I mean, for AMC and their customers, is that it also means buying tickets will be convenient for every customer. So nobody can buy e-tickets, even with a regular credit card. I gotta say, I'm not sure you're going to win this one, AMC. Not at all. And speaking of making dollar-dollar bills, it's time for you the mean segment. Patty Kaching. Oh, Patty Kaching! <laughs> I like our ongoing jokes. It's time for the segment we all know and love as the Bottom Line with Emily Booter. Thank God you asked because I'm here to present the bottom line. Wait, wait, wait. What did she ask? <laughs> <laughs> she she asked me to step up to the plate. Oh, okay. <laughs> Which you have I, a psychic connection. Yeah. Swing away. <laughs> Which I gladly did. All right, so everyone, the bottom line today kicks off with sex, lies, and videotape. And though that does sound fun, and thank you for asking, I'm actually busy tomorrow night, I'm talking about Steven Soderbergh who IndieWire's Tom Bruggerman recently ranked as the highest-grossing indie film director of all time. I'll lay out his other rankings right here, because where the F else? This is the bottom line. Of the top 10 box office track records of classic indie filmmakers, Quentin Tarantino pulls up behind Soderbergh at number two, with nine releases totaling a $918.6 million at the box office. Next up are Joel and Ethan Cohen, whose brother Where Art Thou grossed $71.5 million alone, and Spike Lee at number four, with 21 releases totaling nearly $700 million. Gus Van Sant placed at number five, Richard Linklater at number six, David Lynch at seven, John Sale at eight, and Jim Jarmusch at nine. And number 10 is a bit of a curveball. I bet you wouldn't be able to guess, but it's Joan Micklin Silver, whose film Crossing Delancey grossed about $40 million in 1988. Well, it's been a relatively slow news week, but it's had a strangely high number of industry losses. First, if you've ever enjoyed the movies of Spike Jones, like her or Adaptation, then you know the work of editor Eric Zambrunnen. He edited every single one of Jones's films and some of his iconic music videos, and won the Best Edited Feature Film Award from the American Cinema Editors for being John Malkovich. Sadly, Zambrunnen passed away last week at the brutally young age of 52. We have a remembrance on the site with excerpts from the editor about his process, and we'll link to it in this week's podcast post. And we lost another this week whose name you might be more familiar with. Believe it or not, the New York Times has a way with words, so I'm lifting the first paragraph of their obituary right off the page. 
Jerry Lewis, the comedian, actor, and filmmaker who was adored by many, disdained by others, but unquestionably a defining figure of American entertainment in the 20th century, died on Sunday morning at his home in Las Vegas. He was 91. Now, in my lifetime, he was more well-known for his work raising money for the Muscular Dystrophy Association, but in researching this story, I was amazed to learn more about his very prolific career and how he was an early practitioner of the DIY ethos, often producing, writing, directing, and starring in his own films. He has over 150 credits on IMDb, two of which were just listed this past week on the BBC Critics list of 100 Greatest Comedies of All Time, The Ladies' Man from 1961 and The Nutty Professor from 1963. He was even officially recognized as a, quote, towering figure in cinema at the 2013 Cannes Film Festival. As you can imagine, all sorts of interesting remembrances of Lewis emerged this past week, including a clip from no less than Jean-Luc Godard, who said that Lewis was, quote, more a painter, maybe, than a director, because of his precise framing. We also posted one on No Film School about when Lewis worked with Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro in Scorsese's 1983 film The King of Comedy, which might be a good one to revisit if you want to meet the real Lewis. The actor himself said of the film, quote, To see myself, because I had no mask or no disguise that I'm used to seeing this silly Jerry hide behind, it was doubly frightening. Rest in peace, Jerry Lewis and Eric Zambrennan. I also want to say a sad farewell to the print version of The Village Voice, as its owner announced this week that New York's free alternative weekly will no longer be available as a newspaper after 60 years of publication. This may sound strange coming from No Film School, which is an entirely digital publication built on the emergence of digital video, but we're also New Yorkers who celebrate the spreading of independent voices in all forms of media, and The Village Voice has done a lot over the years to support the work of independent filmmakers. We wish the team over there the best of luck in their transition to a fully digital space. And now here's Charles Hain with some gear news. All right, everybody. Hello. Uh, so our first gear news this week is actually, i got to admit, a little sad. Death has finally come to Final Cut 7. Uh, while it seems like Final Cut 7 died a decade ago, it actually hangs on. There are like some really big editors and some major TV shows that still continue to cut Final Cut 7. And it's still a thing. 10 years after its last major update. However, today Apple sent out an email to users who were still running Studio to let them know that the app will not open on High Sierra, the next OS that's coming this fall. For anyone who learned to edit on Final Cut 7 or who made their first movie on Final Cut 7 or built a business on Final Cut 7, this is kind of sad. Yes, there are much, much, much better options out there for editing today. Uh, if you want to stick with Apple, they're pushing Final Cut X, and some people are starting to really like it. But there's also uh, Resolve 14, which is free. There's Premiere, which is great if you don't mind a subscription. Avid is still pushing the dead corpse of Media Composer around, pretending there might be life left in it. There are a lot of choices. So why are we sad about Final Cut 7? Well, Final Cut 7 was like the big thing that was like cheaper than Avid and affordable to all that we all like embraced it was like what the 5D Mark II did to cameras. Final Cut was for post. Now, yes, you can totally avoid updating to High Sierra, but sometimes you got to update because you want to keep your other apps working. You color grade and resolve, you're going to need to update to the new OSs. Um, also, as we learned a few weeks ago in the Larson Studio leak, old OSs leave you vulnerable. The new OSs get security patches. All those HBO scripts leaked from Larkin Studios because they were running Windows 7 in order to keep some old stuff alive. 
So you've got to weigh that in your choice if you're going to decide to keep Final Cut 7 alive. Uh, that is it, folks. The end of life for Final Cut 7. It's been great. Maybe this means that they'll like come out with a newer version of Final Cut 7. Does that make sense? Like, Well, there's a, like a... there was a rumor that Final Cut 8 was fully developed and completely 64-bit, and they were like, it's not revolutionary enough, and then they did Final Cut X. Yeah. So, you know, if, if somebody's sitting there in Apple and has Final Cut 8, like, in a folder and, like, wants to, like, release it, mm-hmm. I think people would use it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, although I am finally starting to meet people who love Final Cut X. Nice. Yeah. Finally. Yeah, I, I don't love it yet, but someday. I'm, I'm willing to learn to love it. Although I just love Resolve so hard. 14's great. Okay, up next, the world's fastest 15mm lens has arrived. It's hard to make lenses at the extremes open to a wide aperture. Like, your really wide lenses and your really long lenses don't tend to be as fast as, like, your 35mm or your 50mm. It's way more typical with your 15mm to have, like, a 2.8 aperture or a 2.8.4 split on your wide prime if it's covering full frame than it is to see it open all the way to a two, which is why this new E-mount Laowa, uh, which is designed for Sony cameras like the A9 full frame sensors, it's exciting that it opens all the way to a T2, which gives you really good performance in low light and super wide angle 15 millimeter field of view cinematography. Even if you're working with a lot of light, you can stack up some NDs and that T2 aperture can allow you to cut down on your depth of field and have more control over where the audience is looking in your image. So that's pretty cool. And then last up, yes, today it seems like everything is captured digitally, and film isn't really something we think about as much as we used to. I mean, the site is called No Film School, after all, and that could just as easily be read No Film School as it could be read No Film School. Um, Plenty of productions still shoot film, and there's literally a century worth of projects that were shot on film that still need to be transferred to digital, so it's still worth paying attention to some aspects of film tech. Thus, it's really great that not only Blackmagic kept the Sintel scanner alive, that you can like buy a brand new Sintel scanner and plug it into Thunderbolt and scan with it, but that they keep improving it. And they've just come out with a brand new key code and audio reader accessory for that Sintel scanner that lets users read key code from their film as they go, which is going to make it easier for you to cut your negative later. It's also going to make it easier if you're going back to cut that negative to scan quickly through film and find the part you want to rescan. There's a lot of benefits. It's also nice. The audio reader lets you do real-time audio. Previously, you had to like scan it and then analyze it to get the audio. So if you're trying to transfer a whole bunch of old footage with optical audio, the new optical audio reader is going to help a ton. So uh, it's very cool that Blackmagic, which is a company that obviously does a lot of very modern digitally focused stuff, is continuing to put work into this analog tool. And that's kind of boss. Great. Thanks, Charles. Let's move on to Ask No Film School right away. This week, Nathaniel Moody asks, I've just been given a film project and I'm wanting to add haze or fog to the scene. It is set in a forest with a guy running through the trees. I know that if I'm using normal haze or fog machines, it will dissipate very quickly and we won't be able to get anything done. Charles, what do you think? So Nathaniel then includes a YouTube link, which is always great when you're asking questions to identify the look he's going for. It's a Doctor Who scene. And uh, he says, I'm under no illusion that some or all of this stuff was in a studio and the digital effects, but this is a little film. I have no digital effects. Can someone help? 
So this is a great question, Nathaniel. It also sounds like you're being a little ambitious with the project and trying to do something hard and outside your comfort zone, and that's something we always really respect here at No Film School. So badass. Good on you for trying something difficult. There are a bunch of elements in play when it comes to fog, and we're going to try and break them out and talk about them one at a time. So the first thing is, you are absolutely correct, do this in camera. On low-budget jobs, post-fog always looks terrible. I know there's going to be at least one commenter who's like, no, on this one job, look at this fog I did and it looks great. And like, yes, maybe. But the problem with post-fog is it takes us so much time to get right and so many renders and particles always look crappy. And like, it takes so long to do that it's not worth it. On big, huge features where you can throw money and you can throw machines, you can throw people at it, post-fog looks wonderful. On, little, on your little university project, you're absolutely right. Any, like, quick After Effects tutorial on digital fog is going to look awful. So get it in camera. Since you're going to do it on camera, yes, that Doctor Who scene is probably on a stage. And the main reason they did it on a stage is to contain the fog. So if you can find your way into a stage with some trees, which, like, maybe there's a lobby at your university with some trees in it. There's certainly, I've been on college campuses where the lobby has trees before and we shot in the lobby and we lit it such that it looked like a forest. That would be one thing to seriously consider because fog wants to blow away. And so if you can get in any kind of contained space, it's going to make the fog hang much better. Um, also, to do fog outside, you need really big, powerful fog machines. Like the last... Uh, the last Game of Thrones had that big fire battle sequence. And if you look at the BTS for that sequence, there are truck-based foggers driving around that field, shooting out volumes of smoke. And I can practically guarantee they're fogging every take. And by the end of many takes, the fog is dispersed. So on your little indie project, you want to plan for really containing the space as much as you can. Don't try and fog a whole field. And if at all possible, plan the scenes to be really short takes when possible. An eight-minute dialogue scene is going to be really hard to do in the fog because the fog's going to be thick at 20 seconds, and by three minutes, it's going to be gone, right? Now, there are also a ton of recipes online for taking a normal DJ fogger and using dry ice in a box to make it a more sticky fog. There's even a bunch on No Film School. On bigger shoots, you'd use something like oil-based fog, but that can give people upset stomachs if they breathe it in. It requires a VFX specialist to work with, so we would totally recommend sticking with a water-based fogger and a dry ice box. You're going to have to experiment to see exactly what works for you since things like ambient temperature and humidity will affect it. So, like, if the YouTube guy is like, ah, it totally works great with this amount and this amount, you might discover you do that at home and it doesn't look the same at all because it's much more humid or cold when you're doing it than the, than the YouTube person. I would buy more dry ice than you think you need. Many grocery stores sell it. It's not that expensive. Never touch it with your hands. It can burn you. Use gloves or like uh, tongs or something. Um, from there on, just keep remembering that the fog's going to blow off super fast. One final note about that Doctor Who scene you included. You can clearly see they have a light rigged up above pointing down at the actor to give those shafts of light through the fog. You can tell it's a light and scene because the lights really converge all together much more than it would. Like if it were the moon or the sun, the shafts would be a little more parallel. So you might want to consider if there's a way to like rig an uplight in the background to get those cool shafts of light. And as we always say in a film school, testing like testing and then like more testing is the best way to prepare so that when you arrive on the day, you're ready to execute these things you've tested to a T. Also, to the extent that you can, scout and see if you can't find an actually foggy area. Like 
the one thing you have is like you probably don't have big name actors. So you don't have to make it fog the day the actor's available. You can keep looking to see when the fog happens to be available in a forest near you and then schedule your shoot for that day. So the more you test and the more you scout, the more you plan, the better it will go. Good luck. Thanks, Charles. And now moving on to some movies opening this week. On Amazon Prime Instant, you can check out Florence Foster Jenkins on August 27th. Otherwise known as the movie Meryl Streep was nominated for as Best Actor in the year 2016, as opposed to every other single year. And she plays Florence Foster Jenkins, a New York heiress who dreamed of becoming an opera singer despite having a terrible singing voice. It was directed by Stephen Frears and also stars Hugh Grant and Rebecca Ferguson. Coming to HBO on August 26th is Pablo Lorraine's Jackie, one of my personal favorites of 2016, a biopic following Jackie Kennedy's life after the assassination of her husband, otherwise known as JFK. It was one of last year's biggest indie successes, and Natalie Portman joined Meryl Streep in the group nominated for Best Actress for her nuanced portrayal of the grieving widow. Our writer Darren James interviewed cinematographer Stefan Fontaine, who shot the entire thing on Super 16, and it's gorgeous. And in continuing with the Sundance releases that we covered that are coming out in theaters this month, Bushwick is coming out this Friday, August 25th. It was one of the most insane midnight movies I saw on the festival circuit this year. I know I say that about every single one of these midnight you really movies, do. but they're all just super weird, so, you know, I gotta say it. I saw it at Sundance, and I mean, I guess the premise for a neo-Civil War film in America may have seemed more insane a decade ago when directors Jonathan Malott and Carrie Murnian first came up with it, but now it doesn't seem to be so far-fetched. Brittany Snow plays Lucy, a student on her way home to Bushwick, which is a neighborhood in New York City. Where I live. Where Emily lives. And she's on her break from grad school. She gets off the subway only to realize that her Brooklyn neighborhood is under siege from an unknown enemy. Later on in the film, it is revealed that Texas and a handful of other states have seceded from the Union and are the force behind the attack. With the help of Stoop, a former Marine played by Dave Bautista, they attempt to fight their way through the city to safety. For Malat and Murnian, the road to making Bushwick was paved by a ton of hard work and self-education. Neither went to film school, but through a series of successful short film competitions, they were able to capture the eye of a producer at South by Southwest. That led to a directing gig on the 2014 comedy, Horror, Cooties. You should listen to the podcast I did with the two of them about their latest film back at Sundance. It's called A Civil War in Bushwick, Getting Your Film Made from Pitch to Production. Opening in Los Angeles and New York this weekend is one of the first releases from Tim League's new distribution company, Neon. The film is Eliza Hittman's Beach Rats, and it's one I really enjoyed from this year's Sundance, where it won Hittman the U.S. Dramatic Directing Award. I also put it on our list of summer's most anticipated films where I said, Beach Rats features a standout Harris Dickinson and several South Brooklyn non-actors in a quietly fierce coming-of-age tale about a teenage boy torn between the urge to fit the mold of his towny bros, spending the summer partying and making out with girls, and his tortured curiosity about sex with older men. Hitman's sophomore feature After It Felt Like Love it's a 16mm film, and it shows her deft hand at directing sensitive, complicated, and really authentic-feeling stories of teenagers that are anything but the typical teen movies. I interviewed the director back at Sundance, and she has some really instructive things to say about shooting on 16mm, also working with non-actors, and how to shoot sex scenes. So we will link to that in the podcast post as well. 
And on August 25th, Crown Heights is coming to theaters. This is one of the movies I most wanted to see at Sundance, but couldn't because virtually every single showing sold out. Matt Ruskin's movie is about a young man wrongfully convicted of murder and his best friend who then devotes his life to prove his jailed friend innocent. It stars one of my favorite up-and-coming actors, Lakeith Stanfield, as well as former Oakland Raider cornerback great Nomni Asimov. Weirdly. <laughs> but pretty cool. Speaking of weird, kind of a coincidence that all three of the last films that we've discussed take place in Brooklyn neighborhoods. Hmm. New York. It's New York week. In the theaters. What, what? One movie that didn't take place in New York, nor does it come out this week. It came out a few weeks ago, but our writer Max Winter just released an article about it a few days ago, is a movie called Pilgrimage. Pilgrimage is the story of a group of monks who must escort a sacred relic across an Irish landscape fraught with peril way back in the 13th century. It stars Tom Holland, Richard Armitage, and John Bernthal, and was directed by Brendan Muldowney. Max interviewed DP Tom Comerford, and you can check out that article on nofilmschool.com. They shot that film almost entirely handheld, even though it's like an adventure movie that takes place in rivers and across plains and in mountains. It seems like a really nutty production story. And now on to upcoming opportunities. The first of which is the Virtual Reality Venture Capital Alliance, which has a deadline on August 31st. If you're looking for investment in your next VR project, the VRCVA could be of interest. It is comprised of 47 VR investors who will be holding their next investment meeting in Beijing in September. They invest in virtual reality, augmented reality, and mixed reality startups of any size from anywhere around the world. Another opportunity is American Zoetrope Coppola Shorts competition for the year 2017. This has a deadline on September 5th. This is an initiative from the Francis Ford Coppola-founded American Zoetrope. This contest calls for a short film. You can enter your 3-10 to ten minute short film in the Francis Coppola Director Short Film Competition for a chance to win $5,000 in cash and have your film screened at the Francis Ford Coppola Winery Lounge at the 2018 Sundance Film Festival. We've got some great festival deadlines coming up this week, too. On August 31st, the Phoenix Film Festival has a deadline. This is the pun intended, early bird deadline taking place in Phoenix from April 5th to the 15th. It's been given all the accolades of the coolest film festivals and all the festivals worth the entry fee. And <laughs> and the Emily Booter Three Finger Festival Award. <laughs> yes. It's also Arizona's largest film festival. It screens over 150 films, holds amazing parties, and provides filmmaking seminars to capacity audiences of over 25,000. And the Big Sky Film Festival. That's how it's pronounced. Uh, has a deadline of September 1st. It takes place in Missoula, Montana from February 16th to the 25th, 2018. It hosts over 200 visiting artists, presents an average of 150 nonfiction films, and offers a variety of exciting events throughout town. In addition to screenings, it hosts Doc Shop, a five-day industry event that includes panels, masterclasses, workshops, and the Big Sky Pitch Session. It's also an Oscar-qualifying event for short-form documentaries, and the winner of the Best Mini-Doc and Best Short-Doc categories automatically qualified to compete for a documentary short Oscar the following year. And finally, the Sarasota Film Festival has a deadline on September 1st. This is the early bird deadline as well. It takes place April 13th to the 22nd, 2018 in Sarasota, Florida, and it features independent and international narratives, docs and shorts, that are programmed into a schedule of over 100 features. The events include socially driven parties, which 
pretty cool. And <laughs> Instead of you know, you know, it's going to be a cool party when it's socially driven. <laughs> <laughs> and private receptions to honor guest filmmakers, community-wide street festivals, and the Black Tie Filmmakers Tribute Dinner. And now on to weekly words of wisdom. Okay, great. My <laughs> words of wisdom for you this week come from a guest author, Chris Sukorsky, who wrote an article for us called How to Get a Big Budget Song into Your Low Budget Indie Film. He starts off the article by writing, quote, one of the first lessons I was taught as an indie filmmaker was this. Never use a song you won't be able to clear the rights to. Don't write it into a script. Don't add it into an edit. And don't even think about it because you'll never be able to clear the rights. Sikorsky goes on to prove in the article that this isn't always a hard and fast rule. For his film A Shot in the Dark, a documentary about a blind wrestler, Sikorsky, quote, used the music I thought best fit the film and not the music I thought I could afford. His ideal song? Lunatic Fringe by Red Rider, Tom Cochran's band. In the article, Sikorsky outlines the steps he took to clearing the rights for the song. The first, of course, was getting the artist's permission, which Sikorsky audaciously did by cold emailing Cochran through his manager. Then he cleared the master rights with the record label, cleared the publishing rights, and negotiated payments in what's called, in industry parlance, a per-side deal. Sikorsky goes into depth about his personal story, securing rights to the Cochran song, and the general rules of thumb for securing rights to music in his article, which you can find in the post associated with this podcast on nofilmschool.com. Our writer, Loretta Prevost, went to a conversation between two guys who've been working in grip and electric for a combined 17 years, Adam Richland and Joe Osterita, and they shared a bunch of tips for negotiating on set, which is where I'm pulling my words of wisdom from this week. One of the main threads of the article had to do with how to negotiate for pay, which is, of course, something we all have to deal with at one time or another. And one of the suggestions they had was that if the production can't pay the rate you're looking for, maybe there's other approaches to satisfying both of your needs. So like, for example, will the production offer overtime, meal penalties, travel reimbursements, hotel rooms, points, a particular credit, or guarantee a job on the producer's next higher budget production? Could they rent your gear? Could they pay you to drive a vehicle? In other words, are there other parts of the budget they could pull from to kind of get you what you need? That being said, they also had sort of a cautionary tale Almost no one that either of them has worked with over all these years who accepted deferment or points on a film has ever had those things result in funds. So it's like a nice idea that someone says, yeah, if this movie makes money, then we'll pay you. But it just doesn't seem to materialize more often than not. I really liked something in particular that Richland said, quote, an old psychological trick is that if you ask your child to get ready for bed, they'll say no. But if you ask them if they'd rather put on their pajamas or brush their teeth, they'll pick one or the other. So you can do the same thing. You can frame the choices when you talk to a producer. If they want to pay below your rate and not send out a check for a month, you can say that you're happy to accept your full rate at net 30 or a discounted rate if you can get a check the minute the gate on the truck closes. So you've presented two reasonable options for consideration. There's 11 more pointers in this article called Negotiation Skills for Crew, 12 Tips for Getting What You Need on Set. And we will also link to that in the podcast post. My words of wisdom come from myself. I wrote a uh, fresh, some fresh OC uh, this week, as, as some people would call it, some original content. Last Sunday, I guess, I went down to uh, the Chesapeake Bay in Maryland to scout for my short film, 
which is currently in, on Kickstarter. If Woo. you if you don't know, just in case they missed it, John, what is the name of that film? If someone wants to look it up on Kickstarter, the film is called The Guy. It is on Kickstarter, and we're a third of the way funded already, which is cool. Uh, as of today, and it's on, it's been on Kickstarter for a week. So, anyways, back to the uh, weekly words of wisdom part of this whole thing. I, as I said, I was on a scout down in Maryland, and it was the first time I'd ever scouted before. And one of the biggest problems or like challenges of being a filmmaker in New York City is if you're scouting locations outside of New York City, lots of people don't have cars, and just because that's, you know, no one has a car in New York City. I didn't have a car, so I had to figure out what I was going to do to get down to Maryland. That was, like, relatively cheap because I don't have any money either. So no car, no money. How do you get down to uh, location scout? And my biggest regret about this whole experience that I had a few days ago was renting from a super shitty rental car service uh, I took a train out to Newark Airport and rented from one of the like budget car rental places. So, you know, like Dollar or Advantage or Payless or any of those places. Um, and I thought I was being smart because they had the lowest rates online. But those places suck. I mean, they're pretty much always scams. Uh, they ended up charging me about $200 extra in fees when I got back from my trip um, for no reason. And for that reason, it ended up costing me about three times as much as I would have spent going with like Hertz or Avis or someplace that is more credible. Um, my biggest tip though would be to like check out this website called Turo, which uh, is basically the Airbnb of cars. They have really reasonable rates. No one's gonna like screw you over on there. They're all just people that are, you know, looking to make money in the uh, Airbnb hosting vein. I will say, though, that it's illegal in New York, so it, you can only pick up your car in New Jersey. I've done it before. Right, and I went to New Jersey to pick up this car anyways, <laughs> <laughs> so I should have just, you know, gone to uh, one of these Toro places. I just didn't give myself enough time in preparation to order one, so if you are going to use Toro, make sure that you do it, like, a week in advance. Place a reservation. It's super easy. Uh Use Toro if you're location scouting and don't have a car. That's basically the gist of this recommendation. Don't be like me. Don't be an idiot. I like that your weekly words of wisdom are like actually gained wisdom. Like you were dumber at the beginning and you're smarter now. Yep, I will never do it again. (laughs) So for the first time, I'm promoting a podcast, next Monday's podcast, which has not been recorded yet because I'm doing the interview today. But I'm really excited about it. I'm talking to Janissa Bravo and Brett Gelman, director and star, respectively, of Lemon. The pair also co-wrote the film and are married in real life. It's the kind of absurd film where it's almost a foregone conclusion that it's going to be a cult classic. And I've been wanting to talk to them since it premiered at Sundance and then played the opening night of Rotterdam the same week. Now it's being released theatrically by Magnolia Pictures. And John actually had Brett on a previous podcast about the South by Southwest movie Drib and loved him. So I think it's going to be great. Look out for that on Monday. In the meantime, you can read about everything we talked about in this episode and more at nofilmschool.com. You can find our No Film School podcast on every single podcast app or outlet that you know of. But of course, we love it when you go to iTunes and give us those five big fat stars. Rate, subscribe. It's a huge help and we appreciate it. 
And we always love to hear from you, so stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. At Yale Booter. At Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim John Jim 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 Jim, Jim the guy. Yeah, I'm just going to plug it again. Go to Kickstarter and back me, please. <laughs> the guy. Jim John Jim. And we're all at No Film School. See you next week. The guy. <laughs>